Heavenly Father, we come before you and we confess that we are foolish, that we lack knowledge, that we are simple, that we are not wise. But we know that you, the unfolding of your words gives light and understanding to the simple. And so we ask that you would send your spirit as we examine your word together this morning and give us light, give us understanding, give us knowledge, give us wisdom so that we can live for your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our series in the book of Colossians, and particularly Colossians chapter 2. I wasn't here last week, but last time we were together and I preached, we looked at how the Apostle Paul showed that Jesus Christ has given forgiveness of sins, that the debt has been paid through the Lord Jesus Christ, and particularly that he has triumphed over Satan. We saw that in verse 15 of, uh, verse, uh, of chapter 2 of Colossians, if you've got the Bible there before you. It says that after he'd forgiven our sins in verse 13, he cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Again and again, the Apostle Paul has been magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ in the eyes of the Colossian church. We understand that Paul wrote this letter to a church that had never actually met him personally, in all likelihood, uh, but he knew of their conversion that had taken place amongst the, the Gentiles that were there in the city of Colossae, and he wanted to encourage them, and particularly as it came to light that there were some people who had come amongst them with heresies, who were teaching them false ideas. And so he's been magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ to them and showing that Jesus Christ is the one who reigns over all. He is the immortal God and he has paid our debts and he has triumphed over Satan. And so after explaining this and reminding the Colossians of this truth, he then moves to instruction as to what they are to do in light of that. There's a therefore at the beginning of verse 16. Did you notice it? In verse 16, after all that he's spoken about the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, therefore. So now he wants them to act as a result of what the Lord Jesus has done. And what is it that he wants them to do? Well, look with me at verse 16. Verse 16, therefore, do not let anyone judge you. Do not let anyone judge you about something in particular. What is it he doesn't want people uh, in the Colossian church to allow themselves to be judged about? Well, verse 16, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Diets and days is what the Apostle Paul wants the Colossians to be aware of and not let people inflict upon them rules and regulations about diets and days. And this applies to us today as well. He doesn't want people to uh, let, uh, he doesn't want people today to judge us by what we eat or drink either. As it says there in verse 16, this is not just for the church in Colossae, this is of course for all the people of God down through the ages uh, since the New Testament church that we are not to let people judge us by what we eat or drink firstly. That's what I want to look at firstly this morning, about diets. Not days, we'll look at days shortly, about diets. And this is true, that it's not long after becoming a Christian that people will want to inflict upon you different laws about your diet, about what you eat or drink. And that happened in the early church, as, I mean, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Colossae for good reason. And particularly Jews would come in with their laws about their diets and inflict those upon these 
Christians of the early church. And if you look at the, uh, the Old Testament, you see that the laws about diets were pretty extensive. Uh, we did have a fairly long reading there from Leviticus. It didn't mention much about food, but if you want to go to the book of Leviticus and read it this afternoon, you will see that there's a lot about diets there, a lot about what you can and what you can't eat. And this is the case today. If you visit the land of Israel, which I had the privilege of doing earlier this year, you go over there and you eat at the, the buffet in the hotels there, and the diet is very restricted as to what you can and can't eat. And one of the most uh, interesting things for me was, uh, well, most frustrating thing for me was, after my dinner, I like to have a cup of tea. And for the life of me, I couldn't find milk at the evening meal to have a cup of tea, a bit of milk, just a little bit. I don't need a lot, just a little bit of milk in my tea after my meal. No, because milk is not served by the Jews with the evening meal because meat is served. You can get milk in the morning, but you can't get milk in the evening. And so you'll discover this. If you are a Christian, that as you go about this world, there are people there who will inflict their laws about diets upon you. From the Hindus to the Buddhists to the Muslims to the Roman Catholics to the Mormons, they will encourage diets about different things. There will be foods you can't eat at all, like pork. There will be foods that you can't eat on certain days, like fish. There will be drinks that you cannot drink, like those that we refer to as alcohol, or drinks that have caffeine with them, within them. And even the Baptists, I've heard of churches with bylaws, I heard of one just even this week, that requires all members to abstain from alcohol. If you want to be a member of that church, you must abstain from the selling, from the producing, and from the partaking of alcohol. And even the non-religious will come along with their diets for you as well. Vegetarianism, veganism, and they make you feel guilty that you are eating the products of animals. But Paul says, don't let anyone judge you by your diet. But not just diets, we've got to be careful that we don't let people judge us about our days about our days. It says there in verse 16, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Other religions love to make much of days. And we saw that with Judaism. We looked, we read from Leviticus chapter 23, 44 verses, I think it was, of different days, different days that were to be celebrated by the Jews. The Passover, the Feast of Weeks, which is also known as Pentecost, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles. But it's not just the Jews, once again. If you look at other religions, you've got the Seventh-day Adventists that make much of their seventh day. You've got uh, the Muslims who have their Ramadan. You've got the Roman Catholics who have their Lent and their Advent and special days for the saints. If you look at the Roman Catholic calendar, it is quite extensive, all the special days that are listed there for them. And even the Baptists have their Easter and have their Christmas. And then you have the Baptists who are very much opposed to Easter and Christmas. It goes in both directions. It depends which Baptist church you're at, whether they do like Easter and Christmas or whether they really, really, really don't like Easter or Christmas and will judge you if you have an Easter or Christmas celebration. And then, of course, the non-religious. They have their marches. They have their special days. And they expect everyone to come on board and to march with them or to celebrate whatever particular day it is that they want to be noticed by everyone. Diets and days are recommended by lots of people 
upon us as Christians. But you may be saying, but hang on a minute, didn't God encourage food laws and special days? I mean, we read from Leviticus, which is the word of God. He's there recommending certain days, and if we read other parts of Leviticus, we see lots of recommendations about food laws. And isn't the Apostle Paul even respectful of others who want to, Christians who want to observe special days and special diets? As you read in Romans chapter 14, if you want this afternoon to get another perspective from the Apostle Paul on diets and days, read Romans 14, a very helpful chapter, where he says, be very careful, and if people want to celebrate a certain day, that's okay, and if people want to observe a particular diet, then be respectful of them as well. So why is Paul here so strongly against diets and days, where he's, after speaking so wonderfully about the Lord Jesus Christ and making much of Christ's divinity and Christ's work of atonement, he then wants to say, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. Why is Paul against diets and days? Well, for a few reasons. And the first reason is when we are trying to earn our salvation by diets and days. It's interesting the word that is used there. In verse 16 it says, do not let anyone judge you. When we think of judge, we can think, oh, someone who is trying to discern the truth. But judge can also mean condemnation. When we think of God's judgment to come, we think of the condemnation that he's going to bring upon those who have rebelled against him. And so there's this idea of condemning someone by what they eat or by what they celebrate. And the Apostle Paul is very much opposed to that. And there's another hint of it given to us in verse 18, where he speaks about those who uh, make much of the worship of angels. What does he say in verse 18? Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. He's very much against regulations coming upon you that might disqualify you for the prize, that you might start to trust in diets and days for the prize of eternal life. The Apostle Paul is very much against that. And we see that he has made a case against that earlier in the chapter, which we've already read this morning, but it's good for us to be reminded again. What did, how are we to receive the prize? Verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. That is how you get the prize, is by trust in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, not in diets and days. They will not save you. And the Apostle Paul wants to make clear to this Colossian church, don't let these people come in and tell you that you must observe these days and observe these diets so that you can have eternal life. No, you have eternal life already through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's my encouragement to you today as well. If you're trusting in your diet or you're trusting in coming along on particular days to church, that makes you a Christian, then the Apostle Paul says, no, you are disqualified for the prize. If you think that by coming to church at Easter and Christmas, you're a Christian, then Paul says, no, you are disqualified for the prize. Diets and days do not save. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who saves. And if you want salvation, you need to come to him by faith today. Repent of your sins. If you've never repented of your sins, you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I encourage you, come to him now. Don't look at what you do. Look at what is done in Jesus Christ at the cross and trust that he has paid the penalty for you. 
So the Apostle Paul is very much against diets and days when they're used to earn salvation. But he was also against diets and days if such laws are man-made. We look at verse 22, where he's spoken again about, uh, do not, in verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, these regulations that people will impose upon you. And he says, these are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. We have to be careful as Christians that we don't become antinomians, which means anti-law, that we're against all laws, we're against all diets, we're against all days, we're against any sort of regulation whatsoever. Because the Apostle Paul isn't teaching antinomianism. If you look at chapter 3, and even later on down in chapter 2, he's very careful about giving us lots of laws, lots of instructions as to how we are to live. He's not saying just disregard everything, don't let anyone judge you about anything. No, he wants you to be careful about letting man-made laws come upon you, that people will inflict man-made laws upon you. We can fast and we can observe special days as Christians, but we can't judge people for not doing so. And we must be careful when someone comes along with a particular diet or a particular day that they want to put upon us, that we must ask them, Where do you find that in God's Word? Where do you find that in God's Word? Because when we look at the New Testament, and it is our authority for how we are to live as Christians, when it comes to diets, we read in Mark chapter 7, verse 19, Jesus declared all foods clean. Jesus declared all foods clean. So if someone is saying, what you're eating is unclean and you shouldn't be eating it, You have to say, show me in the Bible where that is true and where Jesus' statement is overturned by what you are pulling out from the Scripture. If someone says to you, you can't eat fish on Fridays or a particular Friday of the year, you have to say, where in the Bible does it say that? Or is it just a man-made regulation that you're inflicting upon me? And it's the same with days. The New Testament only encourages, I do think it does encourage us, but it's the only encouragement we have about a particular day, and that is the first day of the week. The first day of the week, Resurrection Day, the Lord's Day, we are encouraged to come together. As for other days, there's no teaching in the New Testament that I've ever been able to see that we are to come together and judge others if they don't come for not meeting with us. So Paul is against diets and days if they're used for salvation, if it's legalism, where you're earning your salvation through your diet or through your day. And he's against diets and days if they are man-made laws that are being inflicted upon God's people. But why else is Paul against diets and days here? Why does he tell the Colossian church, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day? Verse 17 gives us the big reason. We've had two smaller reasons, I would say, but the really big reason is verse 17. What does it say in verse 17? These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. The reality is found in Christ. Yes, God gave diets and he gave days to God's people. But why did he give diets and days to God's people? It was to point them to the Lord Jesus Christ. They are a shadow. The reality is found in Jesus Christ. 
Abstaining from physical food was meant to point us to the need for one food alone, the bread of life, Jesus Christ. And when we diet, when we fast, even today as Christians, it is to remind us that we need Christ alone. We don't need food, we need Christ. And so it's a shadow. The diet that we may put upon ourselves is a shadow that is meant to point us to the reality which is Christ. And it's the same with special days. You look at those days in the Old Testament, and we read them from Leviticus chapter 23, those celebrations that the people of God were meant to have. What were they supposed to do? They were meant to point people to Jesus, to the Messiah, when he came. The reality, they were just a shadow. The Passover, what does the Passover teach? That there's a Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What does the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, point to in the Old Testament? We're pointed to a harvest time. And what is the great harvest of the Lord Jesus Christ? Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, where the Spirit came down as the first fruits of the harvest of Christ's work at the cross and his resurrection from the dead. That is what Pentecost is meant to point us to. It's not meant to be celebrated for its own sake. It's meant to point us to Christ bringing in the harvest by the power of his Holy Spirit. The Day of Atonement, what's that meant to point to? Of course, the work of Christ at the cross. It's not meant to be celebrated. Yom Kippur, in its own sake, it's meant to be celebrated as pointing to the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when Jesus was hanging there on the cross and became the substitute for our sins. The Feast of Tabernacles, interesting feast where you all have to live in tents for a little bit to remind you that Jesus, uh, that God brought you out of Egypt and this is for the Israelites that God brought them out of Egypt and they lived in tents for 40 years in the desert so the Israelites were required once a year to get out and live in tents actually commanded to go camping uh, and it was to remind them of what God had done for them so many years ago that they had had to live in tents which once again illustrates I think the Bible says that tents are a bad thing, and you should live in houses, which is why I don't go camping. I've got biblical precedents for it. Living in tents is a bad thing. But the, in, the disciples, uh, the, the Jews, were told to do it once a year to remind them of the exodus that God had given. Now, how does that point us to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the word tent also be translated tabernacle. What do we know about the Lord Jesus Christ? The Son of God tabernacled amongst us, tented amongst us, the Apostle John says in John chapter 1. He took on flesh and tabernacled amongst us. The Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. The Feast of Tabernacles points us to the fact that Jesus tented amongst us. He lived a poor life for our sake. And we live in these tents even now. This, this body you live in and that you may love very much and you preen each day and you work it out at the gym and you love it so much, it's just a tent in comparison to the true dwelling that you will be given one day when you are redeemed from this world and live forever in the new heavens and the new earth. The Feast of Tabernacles was to point us to the Lord Jesus tabernacling amongst us and how we are tabernacling in this world. This is not our home. We have a far better home that we're looking forward to, and we tabernacle even now through Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ today. The new moon celebration that we heard in Leviticus 23, how does that point us to Christ? Well, I scratched my head about that one for a bit, but John Gill, a Baptist pastor, 
from the 1800s. He says, the new moon celebration points us to the fact that the church receives her light from the sun of righteousness. So the new moon is when the moon first appears in the sky for the year, and, and it's not even you're meant to see a slither of it. You're just meant to, there's sort of darkness up there. But, of course, how does the, how does the moon get her light? It's by the sun. And so how do we get our light? It's by the sun of righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says the new moon celebration does point us to the Lord Jesus Christ as well. It's, it's a shadow of the reality in Christ. And what about the weekly Sabbath? It's mentioned in the text even. A religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. What does Sabbath day teach us? What is the Sabbath? The Sabbath is the day where you stop all at work. Shabbat, where you no longer work for that one day and you prepare everything so you do not have to work that day. What does the Shabbat teach us about the Lord Jesus? Well, it teaches us that in him we cease from the work that we are required to give to God, that Christ has done it all. We simply rest in him. That's what we do by faith. We do not work for our salvation. The work is done and we Shabbat, we rest in him. We stop all work. And one day we will go into the eternal rest. And Jesus rests now from his work of salvation. He sits in heaven, reigning, in session. He has ceased the work. It is finished. And so... The weekly Sabbath, it pointed to that rest. And if you want to know more about that, read Hebrews chapter 4 this afternoon. It talks very much about the Sabbath that we enjoy in the Lord Jesus Christ and will one day enjoy in eternity in heaven. So all these special days and these diets that were given by God, what were they meant to do? They were meant to point us to Christ. They were shadows. The reality is found in Christ. If a young boy is reading a book and notices a shadow fall over him. What does he do while he's reading? Does he go on reading? Does he study the shadow to see who is there? No. He looks up at what is causing the shadow to fall upon him. A child knows what to do when a shadow falls upon him. He looks up. We need to follow the child's example and look up as well. When we hear about diets, when we, we hear about days, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to look at Christ. We're supposed to look at the impact of a diet or a day and see that it points us to the reality that is found in Christ. And so we at this church, if we are to follow the instructions here this morning, we've got to be careful to do what verse 16 says. Do not let anyone judge us by what we eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. And so firstly, I think that that means that we don't put into our church documents, our statements of faith, our constitution, anything about diets and days. And this is why I'm still a little bit sticky about the concept of the so-called Christian Sabbath. There's popular confessions out there, Reformed confessions, and including one that the Reformed Baptists love, which is the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, 1689 Confession, and it has a whole chapter dedicated to the Christian Sabbath. And it reads, It is the law of nature that in general a portion of time specified by God should be set apart for the worship of God. So by his word, in a positive moral and perpetual commandment that obligates everyone in every age, he has specifically appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy to him. From the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, the appointed day was the 
last day of the week. After the resurrection of Christ, it was changed to the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day. This day is to be kept to the end of the age as the Christian Sabbath, since the observance of the last day of the week has been abolished. So what that statement of faith is teaching is that there was a Sabbath day on the last day of the week taught in the Old Testament, and now it has been taken over to the first day of the week according to the teachings of the New Testament. But the proof texts, when you look at them, I don't think teach that. If you look at the proof texts that are given in that confession, the first one is, uh, well, one of them is Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, which talks about the Apostle John seeing the visions on the Lord's day uh, that we have as a book of Revelation. So I think that's speaking more about John than necessarily the church uh, having celebrating a Christian Sabbath. And 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 says, On the first day of every week... Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. So there, obviously, the people were coming together on the first day of the week and they were giving of their finances. That's what that teaches. Uh, And in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week, we, that's the early church, came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. So once again, the people of God are meeting on the first day of the week. But the confession says that, according to these texts, that the day is to be kept to the end of the age as a Christian Sabbath, where you cease work, since the observance of the last day of the week has been abolished. And so it instructs us to cease from all worldly activities. Now, I've got to be very clear here. I think that we as Christians do have to meet on the first day of the week. I think that that's given an example in those texts that we read from, and there's other texts that say do not give in Hebrews that we should not neglect uh, meeting together together with one another, as some are in the habit of doing. No, we should meet together, and the first day of the week is the example that is given in the New Testament, which is a wonderful day to meet because it's the day when Jesus was raised from the dead, and so we we celebrate coming together and the resurrection and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on those days. But I can't see that the Jewish Sabbath laws in the Old Testament now all carry over, as a confession like this says, to the first day of the week. I just don't see it from those verses. Now, I like ceasing all worldly work on Sundays to enjoy a market day for the soul, as the confession commands. The confession says the Sabbath... They're talking about the first day of the week is kept holy to the Lord when people have first prepared their hearts appropriately and arranged their everyday affairs in advance. So you get all your everyday affairs prepared by Saturday and then you celebrate on Sunday a day of complete rest and you observe a holy rest all day from your your own works, words and thoughts about secular employment and recreation. Not only that, but they also fill the whole time with public and private acts of worship and the duties of necessity and mercy. Now, I like the idea of that, and that's what I do myself. I love giving Sundays over to the Lord as his day, from morning till night in spiritual exercises. I love coming to church in the morning. I love then having people over for lunch, to have Christian fellowship with them, and then end the day with the prayer meeting. It's a wonderful time for me. But a verse like Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, makes me nervous about judging someone else for doing something in addition to meeting with God's people on a Sunday. 
I will encourage you, if you come to this church, to come together on a Sunday morning as we see happening in the early church. Well, it doesn't even have to be morning. I mean, Paul preached to midnight. Maybe we should be having our services on Sundays at 11 p.m. See how many of you will show up for that. But you could work all day, right up to 10 o'clock, and then you get ready and come to church at 11. I will encourage you to come to church on a Sunday because I think the Bible tells us to. But I'm very reluctant to say that everything that we learn about the Sabbath in the Old Testament, the seventh day of the week, now carries over to the first day of the week because I don't see that the verses support that, the proof texts that are given. And a verse like 16 of chapter 2 of Colossians makes me nervous about doing so. I don't think we should put it in our documents about diets and days. But what should we do? What should we do when it comes to a verse like this? We know what we shouldn't let, we shouldn't let people judge us about diets and days. What should we do? Well, we should delight in Jesus Christ, not diets and days. Imagine if all you ever did was delight in your spouse's shadow. And your friends did too. Everyone talks about what part they like of the shadow, the length, the width, the variations, the bumpy bits. And they all talk about what part of the shadow could mean about your spouse. That bump there is a head, I think. That gap there can indicate legs coming down. And everyone gets a say as to what the shadow means for them, kind of like abstract art, which I never really understand too much. You all sort of look at it and go, yeah, I think that means that. And everyone's opinion really is equal to everybody else's opinion. And imagine we did that with your spouse's shadow in front of your spouse. And they could hear you and see you doing it and know perfectly well that you could look up from the shadow that's on the floor and look at them and learn so much more if you just looked at them. What foolishness it would be if you just studied your spouse's shadow all the time. And that's what we're doing if we make much of diets and days of food and drink and special days. The false religions say, look at me and what I do. Look at the way that I observe special days. Look at the shadow that my religion makes on my diet. I can go without pork. I can go without alcohol. I can go without caffeine. I don't work on this day at all. I go to worship every week. I have a whole special month set aside for my religion. Whereas a Christian says, yes, Christ does make an impact upon my behaviour and will alter my diet at times and will alter my days and what I do with them. But don't look at me. I'm just a shadow. Look at Christ, the one who casts the shadow. My obedience points me and others to Christ. And look at his goodness, his grace, and understand more about him by looking at him directly than at the shadow he makes in me. And if we do that, Christ will delight in our study of him directly and not his shadow, and bless us instead of cursing us. What would my wife Jill think if all I ever did was look at her shadow 
as I described before, that we could do with our spouse. If I only ever looked at her shadow, what would she do? Well, she's liable to divorce me for desertion. I'm not actually in relationship with her if I'm always looking at her shadow. If I don't talk to her, I don't look at her, I don't listen to her, I just concentrate on the shadow. It's a form of desertion. It's cruelty to do that to a spouse. What do you think Jesus does if we just concentrate on diets and days? He's liable to divorce us, to curse us for simply making much of his shadow rather than looking at him. Whereas if I admire my wife, Jill, if I look at her and pay her constant attention, she's liable to bless me, not divorce me. And it's the same with the Lord Jesus. If we look at him again and again and again and make much of him in his reality, the substance of him, and we look at his word and study him, he is going to bless us again and again. So do we want to become more spiritual at this church? Well, keep studying Christ. And obedience will follow. Obedience will follow. Legalism will be far from us earning our salvation, but we will love God's law. Remember, we're not antinomians. We love God's law. We want to be obedient to him. We may even enjoy diets and days. I'm not saying don't ever fast here. You can enjoy diets and days as well as the Lord's day and coming together to meet in his name, but it will be always with giving thanks to God and with looking at the Lord Jesus Christ primarily. As Paul says in Romans chapter 14, verse 5, one man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. That's what it means if we look at Jesus Christ. It means that we are obedient, but it follows on from us continually looking to Christ and giving thanks to him. And so we're naturally willing to adjust our diets and our days without anyone needing to impose laws upon us and judge us because of the way that we live and the way that we eat or drink. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Let's speak with him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you as our saviour. We thank you that we don't have to keep diets and days to have forgiveness of sins, that you have cancelled the debt. Lord, we thank you that we know this is true because your word has told us that we can look at your word and see you there. We do not have to look at the shadows, but we can look at the reality. Lord, we pray that you would help us to encourage others not to trust in diets and days, we pray that you would help us not to trust in diets and days. It is so easy to have them inflicted upon us. But instead, O oh Lord, we pray that we would admire you more and more. And we pray that we'd always be pointing people back to you. We pray that we would make much of the fact that in Christ we see the living God and that you are the substance, the reality that we hunger for. And so we will neglect the shadows because we are enthralled with you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.